Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology and the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following is from a conference entitled 450 Years Pioneering Catholic Education, Past, Present, Future. It was the 450th anniversary conference for the founding of the English College at Dowie, organized by the Center for Catholic Studies of Durham University, Ushaw College, and St. Cuthbert's Society of Ushaw. The conference was held at Ushaw College in Durham from the 30th of April to the 1st of May, 2018. This presentation was given by Dr. Claire Watkins of the University of Roehampton and is entitled Discerning Church, Forming the Church for Authentic Catholic Living in Late Modern Britain. Historian, I felt like an imposter really for the last two days. So we're making a departure from the, the really uh, remarkable and fascinating history that we've been listening to in the last couple of days. And I suppose this is a moment where we surface in a particular way the questions around Catholic edu education for the present and for the future. In fact, what this paper will not deal with are the practicalities of those issues, though I, I did consider looking at the research I've done around schools and seminary education. But rather, I think what I want to do is make a case for a radical change in our overall approach to questions of pedagogy in the church today, informed really by the changes in the patterns of institutional life in our society, and specifically of church and culture, and the changing patterning of ordained and lay life in our church. Throughout the presentation, I will be putting out, I've got no nice pictures like historians have, sorry. Um, it's all about the words for me. So I will, I will be putting up words on the screen. They are mainly there for illustrative purposes. I won't be reading them. And they will be quotes from texts and documents that I've used to inform the account that I give here. And I thought it appropriate to begin with this overall vision, really, from the Second Vatican Council of what a Christian education should be about. As one of the schools that we worked with in the Visions for Educational Leadership put it, they wanted to put in their prospectus that theirs was not an education that prepared young people for life, but for death. The governors said no. <laughs> As we know, in 2011, after some years of discussion around seminary education in general in England and Wales, this college closed as a place of training for priesthood and a centre for lay education. I'm sure the reasons behind this were many and complex, and not entirely just to do with economics. But at the heart of it lay a significant shift in the patterns of ministry, life, and education in the church, Catholic Church in England and Wales. We're living in a time, as we know, where churches are all in institutional decline. Numbers of clergy, but also of laity, let's remember, are dropping. And at the same time, there are cultural norms that militate against the pedagogical styles that have been adopted by the Catholic Church in much of the modern period. The questions of how faith is to be transmitted and how faith communities are to be formed are vexed, are debated in schools, parishes, dioceses, universities, and, of course, seminaries. And it's this that I want to look at in this paper as we depart from the historical uh, accounts that we've heard so far, so that, informed and shaped by that past, we can turn to look at where we are now and think a little about where we might go from here. 
I believe that something of the courageous and visionary spirit of those who established seminary education in England is needed today, but that the particular challenges of our context and what might be the appropriate response to them is perhaps less so. In speaking to this, I am not going to offer any, I think, answers. Rather, what I'll do is I'll set out some arguments for specific pedagogical principles for today's church, which seem to me to be suggested by ecclesial and cultural landscapes. In order to do this, I will first briefly describe those, I always say briefly, it never turns out that way, but anyway, that's the intention, to briefly describe the landscapes of culture and church and their demands, before focusing on what seems to me to be the key response into which we've been called as a church, discernment. From here, we can begin to identify what kind of teaching and learning, what kind of formation for discernment might be appropriate for our time and for building a future. My underlying supposition is that recent generations have seen a significant shift in what it means to say that ours is a teaching church. This shift was authoritatively established, I think, in the Second Vatican Council and is rooted in what might be described simply as a shift from an instructional pedagogical emphasis to a participatory teaching and learning emphasis. In keeping with wider educational shifts in the 20th century, attention has moved away from a reduction of learning and formation to the imparting of information from the expert to the ignorant and moved, for better and worse, to a learner-centered and more holistic approach. Theologically and ecclesiologically, this is rooted, I would suggest, in a number of fundamental aspects of Catholic tradition, as well as our culture, which were renewed and recontextualized in Vatican II, and these are texts with which you'll be very familiar. For example, the way in which the Council uh, recognized in De Verbum the complexity and the, the personal multi-voiced nature of revelation as truth seems to be very significant pedagogical moment for what we think we're doing when we're educating, when we're forming people in faith. The Council's restatement of the participation of all ordained and lay in the Christ's office of priest, prophet and sovereign with all that that brought to complexifying appropriately, I think, the landscape of the relationship between lay and ordained and the way in which lay and ordained can be educated together and indeed separately. And of course, the re-emphasizing of the world as a place of grace in which the lay Christian is called to exercise a particular kind of wisdom. Um, I apologize to those who mind about this, the non-inclusive language here. I tried to redo it, but it was just horrible. So you've got, you've got lay men here, but presumably women as well do this. Possibly more of us. All, <clears throat> all this has contributed to a different kind of teaching church, indeed a teaching and learning church in which occasions of teacher-learner role reversals can be recognized as a proper dynamic, and the expertise of the ordinary faithful, the worldly Christian, is called into active engagement with the traditions of Episcopal magisterial teaching authority. Now, we should comment, of course, what we all know, that this, this shift has not always been easy or even. Many of the trends in catechesis I've seen in my lifetime which have, for example, moved towards the affective at the expense of the instructional, have I think, been widely recognized now as, as quite damaging to the life of the church, as well as bearing some fruits. Similarly, um, a tendency that I've seen in schools, but particularly in seminaries, to try to, 
to call into something, sorry, to, to build something called um, clear teaching, which actually usually has a, a very conservatizing element, you know, simplifying things. That too seems to me a trajectory which is not going to serve us well. Fundamentally, I think we would be helped by learning a little bit more from our longer history, our pre-modern history, as we take on the complexity of life in today's culture. Aquinas, after all, and I'm thinking of De Veritate, question 11 in particular, De Veritate offers a clear understanding of the role of teacher as, to be anachronistic, facilitatory to the learning that is, um, whose agency is really the Holy Spirit, even whilst at the same time he locates this facilitation within a clear curriculum of philosophical and the theological learning. Our move in the late modern period from instructional models of learning towards participatory processes is complex and will not be easy. It is, however, a move necessitated by our context, but most importantly, encouraged by our reflection on the pedagogical legacy of pre-modern thinkers such as Aquinas, but also <coughs> Augustine and Anselm would spring to mind here. In saying that this move is required by our context, I've got in mind two major arenas the church and the world, although as we'll see, we can't really separate those two easily. So first of all, I just want to name the realities of church life today with which we're familiar and which are very different from the kinds of church life that we've been hearing about um, today and yesterday. We are in Western Europe at least a church in institutional decline. Much has been made of the need for more ordained ministers, of course, but we also need to recognize that there's a dramatic fall in lay believers. Parishes are closing. The, many of the schools that we worked with um, across England and Wales in the Visions for Educational Leadership Project are dealing with largely unchurched uh, communities and indeed non-Catholic families using uh, the, the state Catholic school sector. And fewer and fewer of our baptised members are choosing to avail themselves of confirmation or indeed marriage when they marry. It doesn't happen in church. Now, it's easy to get pessimistic about this. Um, I don't necessarily want to read that information in that way. I think the reasons behind these statistics are complex. And I also think that there are opportunities and graces that arise from them that are too often unrecognized and underexplored. I just want to name them and park them there as the well-known backdrop to our ecclesial life and so to our pedagogical life as well. But there is something that we just need to identify underneath all these well-rehearsed observations of which any account of contemporary faith formation needs to take account. The complexifying of hierarchies and authorities within our Catholic communities. What I mean by this is the move to an ecclesiological understanding which simultaneously affirms hierarchy and magisterial, which is to say teaching authority, and at the same time, holds to a fundamental theology through which these structural mediations of authority can and should on occasions be subverted. This reflects the established recognition of the dual ecclesiology of Vatican II as both institutional and simultaneously charismatic. For the post-conciliar church, the locating of this power of the spirit in multiple loci, I was told recently I said that word wrong, sorry, whatever it is, loci, written and unwritten traditions, scripture, magisterial teaching, science of the times, lay charisms, experience, secular, all those things are seen as graced. That multiplicity of voices both reflects and gives faith foundation to the multiply voiced conversations, which are so much the characteristic of late modern teaching and learning practices. 
As a church, the multifaceted and complex nature of truth is not simply a cultural challenge born of a postmodern age, but an ecclesiological commitment to be lived and navigated for the sake of what is most true and what is most holy. In practice, this calls into theological as well as cultural question any patterns of teaching and learning that reduce pedagogy to instruction or a one-way communication from the expert to the ignorant. These shifts in church life are an important basis, but we need also to think about the second arena which must shape and form anything we do around formation and education today and in the coming generations. To grow up as a Catholic in our nations today is to be part of a minority, not only as a Catholic in a, in a Protestant country, not even as that, but to be in a minority as a person of faith at all. This growing up is likely to be more influenced by the normativities of Western liberal postmodern culture and the digital age, which is so much a part of it, than it is to be shaped by mass attendance, even for the minority who attend mass weekly, or catechesis, scripture, or devotional practices of faith. It is this reality that our churches, and I have to say, especially perhaps many of the clerical members with whom I've worked, not all, of course, is this reality that we struggle to respond to effectively and in continuity with our longer tradition of pedagogy. Broadly, I would identify two polarizing tendencies among our ecclesial responses. The first is a move to a conservatizing emphasis on clear teaching, in which church teaching is proclaimed counterculturally in the face of the secular, plural, late modern culture and all its diversities and contested truths. On the other hand, there is a resignation to the powerful formative influences of the prevailing culture, with an attendant uncertainty as to how faith in its knowing might find a voice at all within it. This latter position is often manifest in a simple lack of courage, of articulation of faith and tradition, through an anxiety born of this uncertainty of how we are to respond. This presentation is rooted in a sense that both our longer tradition and the present papacy is calling us to a somewhat different relationship within our culture than either of these polarized responses of clear teaching or anxiety. And this is one based on practice discernment. And it's this, I want to suggest, that should shape any practices of formation and education going into the future. The significance of the call to discernment for contemporary faith formation can be brought into sharper relief when we consider in a little more detail the challenges of the culture by which we are all predominantly formed, that of late, or some would describe it, post-modernity. There's been some very helpful work done by this um, from the Heathrop Institute for Religion, Ethics and Public Life, as it was, um, under the direction of James Hanby the Jesuit theologian. The resulting document, which was commissioned and published by the Catholic Education Service in 2005, set out specifically to describe the impact that cultural change in late modernity might have on our Catholic traditions of education. It lists, identifies seven major clearly interrelated themes, but also offers um, some reflections on other difficulties, among which feminism is mentioned, interestingly. Another difficulty. Two of these seven major themes present themselves, I think, as especially pertinent here 
although the ones I want to look at. Secularization with its disintegration of a common language, and then the turn to the subject with its privatization of meaning. At the heart of these two themes is a secularization which radically separates the sacred and secular in our thought and discourse, relegating the sacred to the realm of the personal and private. Much attention has been given to the impact of this secularizing tendency and how it affects public discourse. But in this document, the concern is much more with the effects that it has on personal and communal notions of truth and meaning. As the sacred and transcendent recedes to the private realm, individuals are left to bear the entire weight of forging meaning for their lives in a context of a plurality of truth claims, competing narratives and truths. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the person who finds themselves under such pressure and in such a sea of a multiplicity of voices with no overarching narrative not only becomes deeply suspicious of universal truth claims, but also turns back to themselves, to their experience, their feeling, and this is where we get the turn to the subject, to the affect. Ultimately, of course, in a post-Freudian post age, what people meet, what we meet when we turn inward, without any guidance other than our inward life, is rarely, if ever, a confidence concerning truth. Rather, what we meet there is an epistemological crisis, as McIntyre would describe it, perhaps even a neurosis, born of the realization of our own problematic, flawed interior selves that actually, in the end, cannot answer the most pressing questions of meaning and truth in our lives. For myself, I think this um, it, picture that is provided for us by um, On the Way to Life, useful it, as it is, probably needs some conceptual deepening. One of the places I would look to find that would be in the work of Leven Berber um, in Leuven, whose work on interruption and tradition, I think, offers us uh, another possible way of understanding late, or as he describes it here, postmodern culture. Berber typifies this contemporary culture in the West as, as a context of radical plurality, in which, in principle, there can be recognized no authoritative voice. This cultural conversation that has, has to take place is necessarily many-voiced and hyper-democratic, and made, and this is an important point, made up of the articulation of various particularities. Indeed, it is the particularity of each voice in our culture, what makes it other from the others. It's that which is fundamentally all we have in common just our particularity. That and the conversations that we choose to have with other particularities. Berber makes clear in this context um, that there are assumptions of modernity which have permitted a rationalized account of the relationship of church and world that simply cannot stand within late or post-modernity. For example, he suggests that the modern, the whole idea of the world as secular and the church as sacred which arguably is only a modern idea, that whole idea has led not only to an oppositional account of church and world, which he suggests might be typified by Joseph Ratzinger, but also to partnership accounts of church and world as typified by Karl Rahner. In each case, he writes, Christian faith and postmodernity appear in a one-to-one -one relationship, whether the mutually critical relationship of two partners working towards a common good 
or the opposition of two, part, of two cultures with the essence of the human person and the world as the wager. The problem here is that modernity presents church and world as two different realities, leaving the ecclesiological endeavor to figure out the nature of the relationship. Now, what Burr was suggesting is something very different, which is more in keeping, he says, with contemporary European late modern, postmodern culture. For him, he wants to offer an account which locates faith and church in the melee of the plural, multi-voiced conversations of our context. And this demands, I suggest, a radically different pedagogical call to communicative activity, participatory activity in the world, because there is no other place to be. At the heart of what Berber's describing is his conviction that what is dominant within postmodern cultures is not, in fact, secularism, as On the Way to Life proposes it, which defines itself over and against religion or church, but rather, he suggests, what is central is particularity, with its corollary of empirical, authentic, and wide-ranging pluralism. This pluralism is not a matter of relativizing different views or religious pluralism, but it is more fundamental, describing the way in which we are a context which has come to realize that particularity is the one thing that we have in common. You can see this as a disintegration, but in fact, I think Berber is offering us a somewhat more hopeful um, image here. In fact, he suggests that this emphasis on particularity returns the Christian gospel to its roots in, its, in the faith in the incarnation. The faith that when God speaks truth, he speaks in a particular man, in a particular time, in a particular place, is a way of understanding this particularity theologically. But of course, we would want to add to that in the Christian tradition that that particularity of Jesus, of the incarnate word, has universal significance. And this is where the tension falls. The risk here in uh, this postmodern uh, context of lots of different voices is that faith becomes one voice among many and that we lose sight of the foundation of that faith, i.e. that it is concerned with what is divinely revealed, that it claims to speak, albeit in mediated and partial ways, the truth about God and humanity. This is the conviction of our tradition, a conviction which, as our papers have shown, is worth dying for. The question arises, does our context simply demand that this faith tradition becomes another example of that turn to the subject which ultimately results in epistemological crisis and anxiety? Do we just compete with other voices in a marketplace? For Berber, this difficulty is answered by his use of Metz's notion of interruption, hence the title about interrupting history. It is, he argues, when this complexity of different conversations between plural particularities takes place and faith takes part in it fully, it's when this is understood as a creative and constructive event precisely where it bumps into its limits and we experience interruption. The moments, he says, where the narrative collides with its own borders. There comes a point where the conversation collides with its own borders and it's there that we experience the interruptions. And insofar as they are God's interruptions, they are moments of revelation. What is coming to light, I hope, in this account of church and culture is a sense of a faith community which is thoroughly and inevitably, and I would say properly, enmeshed in a culture of pluralism and the hyper-democratization of information and opinion 
It is a context in which the Catholic tradition of faith is in reality one, and indeed a plural one, voice among very many and often more compelling and practically immediate voices, all of which go towards the formation of whole persons in our society, um, including those of us who are here, increasingly so the lives of my children's generation. Furthermore, the vexed question of authority in late modern teaching and formation and its transformation particularly, we'd note through digital media, is acutely felt by our tradition, whose calling to teach with authority is rooted in a strong sense of a received history and a belief in a transcendent source for our authority, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. In our times, neither of these can be expected to hold much sway in the larger formative conversations of our culture. And that's the challenge that we need to face, I suggest. I want to move to consider now in a bit more detail discernment. And the reason for this is that I think what we're seeing in this rush through both the ecclesial disintegration of the institution and the changes within uh, our late, certainly our late modern Western culture, is actually calling us into a different kind of discourse from certainly previously in, in modern times. We're being called in an altogether more challenging, even frightening discourse, in which our faith in the divine authorizing of our faith tradition has to be totally trusted as we take our place as conversation partners among multiple voices. What we need to become in our education and our formation is not so much instructors or proclaimers or religious problem solvers or spiritual authorities, but rather attenders on the work of the spirit which is happening ahead of us. And the people who name that work as it interrupts our listening and speaking in this complex conversation of late modernity. We must, in short, become discerners of God's own teaching which is active in our world. Now the theme of discernment as a strong element in Pope Francis's teaching, is well recognized. Each of the three exhortations can be read as a call to discernment. And this reflects his own um, uh, roots, not only in Argentinian liberation theology, but also in his formation as a Jesuit, as we'll see. If the Vatican II popes were concerned with developing a constructive dialogue between church and world, this modern setting of church and world alongside each other. And if John Paul II emphasized the missionary, the proclamative, and more often than not, the countercultural, we have in Francis a joyful and I think deeply human evangelizing engagement with and in and for the world. This engagement is characterized by attentiveness, accompaniment, and mercy. The church of Pope Francis's vision takes on the role, perhaps, of a wise spiritual guide, serving complex lived realities as, as they're heard and attended to, toward their joyful destiny in God, but without too swift a judgment, too swift an answer, or too hasty a conclusion. Now, of course, the emphasis on discernment is not a modern thing. It's not a novel thing that Francis has just plucked up from nowhere. Um, Luke Timothy Johnson and his, his book here uh, makes clear that this is a central theme for the New Testament, particularly in the Pauline corpus, where we have the first Christians themselves trying to discern what it is to live a faithful Christian life in often highly plural and contested contexts. And he argues persuasively for an account of uh, diacresis, this uh, uh, 
this New Testament practice of communal discernment as characterized on the one hand by a humility and an openness to, if you like, the authority of the word, the authority of the kerygma, but also characterized on the other by a rigorous egalitarianism, which mitigates, militates against um, any idea that discernment is simply about going along with what has you've been told, that there is this also this sense of a kind of subversion of that authority, and that those two things are held together. And um, Anthony Rich um, has pointed out the way this also works through the Desert Fathers here. Um, and for myself, I find very moving reading uh, Pope St. Gregory's Pastoral Rule, which seems to me to be a remarkable example of... Uh, what it is to discern how you are to speak to different sorts of people at different sorts of time about the same thing in recognition that different people learn differently, not only due to temperament, but also to do with the circumstances of their lives. This is a long part of our tradition. Of course, most immediate to Francis's own formation is the influence of Ignatius Loyola, whose spiritual exercises and, of course, the taught practice of examen to which were exhorted in the most recent apostolic exhortation in particular, remain fundamental to much of the practice of spiritual erection and discernment today. When we turn to look at how the present Pope's teaching on discernment calls for a distinct pedagogical practice, we do well to remember some of the key themes of Ignatian discernment, themes which are found, find clear contemporary expression in these three apostolic exhortations. The rules for discernment which append Ignatius' exercise, exercises, completed, I think, around fifth. 1523-4, are essentially notes to aid the director of those undergoing the exercises. In particular, they want to make clear how to discern between the good and evil spirit as they work in the, in the person. So you've got this turn to the interior, as we saw in late modernity, and this recognition of the difficulty of what it is to make the right decision. And this is going on here um, in Ignatius's writing. I want to just draw attention to a couple of things that seem to me to be important in any quest for principles of formation for discernment in a discerning church today. First of all, in these rules for discernment, much attention is paid to attending to interior movements, of course, and many of you, of course, know this much better than I do. Affect, mood, demeanour, as well as the fruits that are evidence in action, as well as feelings, are to be carefully considered. This attentiveness to the interior is not, however, straightforward, as it is clear that both the evil spirit and the good spirit act differently on different temperaments and at different times for different people, depending on what might be most effective towards their various ends. And here there's an echo of uh, Pope St. Gregory's wisdom. Furthermore, Rational contemplation of the affective experiences of consolation and desolation, which is so key to Ignatian discernment, is complicated by the recognition that one might feel consoled through the action of the evil spirit, who often, and I quote, assumes the appearance of an angel of light. The person who is called into discernment is called into a place of true difficulty and even apparent confusion, that word that is so often used as criticism of what Pope Francis is doing, you're called into that place of difficulty and confusion because that's where the proper place to seek more deeply the step which is to be taken next to come more close to Christ. Of course, for Ignatius, unlike the vision of late modernity that on the way the life to, offered us, we are not without guides in this testing and ongoing life process of growth. Not only does he recognize the importance of the wise and experienced director in the exercises, with their qualities of openness, attentiveness, and care. 
But also, the centrality of the gospel account of Jesus' own life and passion in the exercises always holds the discerner close to the person and journey of Christ. Added to this, we should note also Ignatius' rules for thinking with the church. I was tempted not to go there, but I thought that would be disingenuous. These are ultimately uncompromising in insisting that, and I quote, we must put aside all judgment of our own and keep the mind ever ready and prompt to obey in all things the true spouse of Christ our Lord, our Holy Mother, the hierarchical church. Here is a clear statement of uh, church authority, which finds a very, to me, very alarming, I'm not sure I can go with this, but anyway, a very alarming statement here about actually how if the church says white is black, that's what you believe. Ignatian discernment is clearly not about figuring out our own truth in any late modern way. I want to suggest, though, that rather than taking these rules for thinking with the church as, if you like, the closing down of discernment, given the rest of the exercises and the rules for discernment which go alongside them, that what actually is going on here is that a a tension is being set up between a clear sense of obedience, which is startling in its assertion, and the dominant and persistent sense that nonetheless, even within this hierarchical authority, the Christian life can be nothing other than a slow, complex way of discernment if we are truly to make progress toward Christ. Anyone familiar with Pope Francis's various exhortations to the church of today will recognize some common themes with Ignatius here. Francis's persistent use of the language of discernment is key in his treatment of difficult questions and contemporary Christian living and opens up an uncompromising tension between the Christian's gradual, slow steps in the particularities, limitations, and graces of our realities and the clear and unquestioned authority of the Catholic tradition. This is the tension into which each of the faithful is called today. This is the tension for which and within which we need to think about formation and education. This is a life of continued learning, of teaching through accompaniment, and the development of qualities of interiority, attentiveness, and the continuous seeking of what the spirit is about in the world so that we might follow, rather than figure out our own way forward. So, in conclusion, I want to explore a little how Pope Francis' exhorting of the church to these practices of discernment carries with it implications for faith formation and pedagogy today. And as I say, these won't be practical suggestions in the main. They're simply a suggestion about the sorts of principles we might need to bear in mind when we start thinking about the practices, both that are existent in our seminary schools, universities, and so forth, parishes, catechesis, but also, more importantly, as we think about the next step that we need to take as we move away from these great historic institutions into a different way of being a teaching and learning church. Perhaps the first thing to recognize, I think, um, in thinking about what Francis says about discernment is that it is based within a particular theological or spiritual context, that the world is a place of complex realities, and realities are more important than ideas, and that it is here that we find the spirit at work in all people. This primary theological account of human living is not only in accord with an Ignatian tradition of discernment, but has helpful and important resonances with our cultural context of plural particularities. 
there is quite simply no single place where we can go to get the answer for everyone. It is this that lies behind Francis' insistence that it is not the job of the magisterium to supply simple answers to be applied in all cases. This comes to light particularly, of course, in Amoris Laetitia. The authentic particularity of each situation and the promise of divine agency within it militates against such an instructional applicationist approach. This universally particular work of the spirit, again, notice that it is the particularity that's universal, in fact. The universal particularity of the work of the Holy Spirit is to be recognized even, he suggests, in situations that are deemed in some way to be outside or perhaps even in contradiction to the church's tradition. And this is made particularly clear in Amoris Laetitia. I was struck, the kind of radical nature of this, but also the way it challenges our notions of teaching, came to me, I gave a, a yet another study day on Amoris Laetitia to a diocese a few weeks ago, and was talking about this call to discernment and, and not saying that all rules can be just applied to every situation. And somebody, a layperson, um, said, doesn't that mean that everything will become unraveled and then there will be nothing? And I thought that was a really interesting observation. Um, on one level, of course, the sense of unraveling is true, but the really disturbing idea was that when we unraveled all our rules, that there would be nothing. And I think what Ignatius and what that Ignatian instinct for discernment is saying is, no, there's always God. There's always the spirit at work, even when things look like they're disintegrating. And that's the kind of formation in that trust that I think we have perhaps failed to, to establish, certainly in my generation and my children's. In terms of faith formation, what we've presented here as fundamental is a view of Christian living which is centred on the discernment of God's work in all things. And there are two clear corollaries here. The first is that Christians today and in our future need to learn how to be confident in attending to diverse and complex realities with courage and honesty so as to recognise how God is at work and what God's spirit is leading us to. A second point here concerns agency. The understanding of discernment as our pedagogical goal suggests that all our learning, training, and faith formation be not so much geared to our own competencies in maintaining the church or effectively growing it, devising ever greater and more interesting marketing strategies, but rather what is called for is a formation which recognizes God's agency as the only authentic power at work, in relation to which our learning needs to be one of response rather than control. Closely related to these basic observations is the vexed issue, of course, of authority, which is a major theme in all accounts of teaching and learning, not just in the church or theologically. But authority, of course, has had a particular part to play in the thinking and practices of Catholic education and formation and continues to be something of a lightning conductor for current debates. Many have been quick to cry confusion as Pope Francis speaks both of a, the firm authority of the church's traditions, for example, in relation to marriage, but at the same time calls for pastoral discernment for particular realities which cannot simply be bound to universal rules. In fact, as we've seen, this is entirely in keeping with that dynamic, faithful discernment we've seen in Ignatius' exercises, and speaks not so much of an undermining of the authority of tradition, but rather of a decontextualizing of that 
of a, sorry, of a recontextualizing of that authority within the dynamic of living day-to-day -day discernment. I think this is especially clear in that most recent apostolic exhortation, Gaudete et Exaltate. In terms of formation, this suggests that church teaching, the authoritative tradition, should of course be taught and learnt and pondered, but it is learnt not so much as a set of rules to be applied or the last word to close down a particular discernment, but as an essential part of the dynamic work of discernment, which enables the next step into an essentially mysterious and unknown future. We still have authority in our teaching, but it is of a different kind. One of the most demanding and elusive aspects of this emphasis on discernment and its implications for formation is the way in which practices of personal interiority, wisdom and care are named as essential. Um, some very fine passages, I think, in um, Gaudete et Exaltate on this. These skills, practices, prayer, contemplation, attentiveness, are too often seen in our educational culture as soft skills, even in our seminaries. Perhaps they're even seen not as skills at all, things that can be learned, but things that you may or may not just have temperamentally. <coughs> and yet surely there are suggested here not only practices of prayer to which we can be effectively apprenticed, but also very practical identification of skills that other professions exercise, skills in listening, in attentiveness, which can be taught, learnt, and honed. Faith formation for a discerning church must find ways of enabling these skills, not only for a few, not just for a clerical uh, class, but as far as possible for all, through teaching and training, but also through practicing them in our communities, schools, colleges, seminaries, and indeed in our homes. Much more detail and reflection needs to be given this call to discernment and its implications for formation. I think all I've tried to do here is to set us off in a useful, I hope, direction for a, a conversation in this crucial area. I've tried to, well, no, I have named some of the contextual realities for faith formation today and argued that it is an education towards discernment that needs to characterize the church's pedagogical endeavors in today's world. In order to name principles appropriate to such pedagogy, we have needed to reflect on certain themes and implied skills wisdoms that arise from the accounts of discernment that have been outlined, and particularly those called for by Pope Francis's recent teaching. Many such themes and areas of learning might be identified, but in what I've presented here, I, I think three have surfaced um, for me particularly, and these are authority, or atten attentiveness, and agency, the way in which our notions of authority and teaching need to be revisioned and re-understood in the light of these cultural and ecclesial changes, the importance of learning skills and practices of attentiveness and a re-understanding of whose agency we are really interested in when we talk about formation, training and education. And the discerning church is not about helping people to be agents, but helping people to respond to divine agency, which means learning to recognize it. It is, I suggest, by renewing our sense of these as the central column of all Christian formation and allowing them to be understood as outlined in this paper a little bit and letting them permeate all our teaching and learning 
that we will arrive at a pedagogy that is most appropriate for our times and most life-giving for our future, for the church of our children. Although identification of and reflection on these themes of authority, attentiveness, and agency have begun, perhaps, to hint at possible practices of formation in our church, there is, in this presentation, a gap between principles and practice. It's a precipice that all too many theological accounts stop at. And I'm always very critical of that, but this presentation has done exactly that. However, it is also the point at which I want to hand over to this experienced and wise group to see if in our thinking together we can begin to build into this principle and practice gap. Of course, I've got ideas of my own. But in the spirit of the pedagogy that's described in this paper, I don't want to end with some suggestions for practice, but with the opening up of these ideas for a shared thinking and conversation, and perhaps even for a little discernment. Thank you. <laughs>